Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Donoghue. Join us for our new podcast series, FX Omics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FX Omics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Amanda Archibald. She's the founder of The Genomic Kitchen, a system of choosing, preparing, and understanding food-based culinary genomics, a term she coined to express this revolutionary merging of genomic science, nutrigenomics, and the culinary arts. Widely recognized for her trailblazing work, as a culinary nutritionist and dietitian, Amanda has a long-standing commitment to redefining the food, nutrition and cooking education footprint in ways that make them understandable, meaningful and fundamentally achievable for all. Welcome to FX Medicine, Amanda. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Good to be back with you. And I can't wait to meet you and to hear what you've got to teach us at the uh, 2019 Bioceutical Symposium. But I guess first, can you take us a little bit through your history? Because you trained as an analyst, right? What's your journey to become a nutritionist from there? Well, you know, uh, the journey is sort of intertwined because I was a nutritionist or dietitian before I was an analyst. Ah, so, gotcha, gotcha, you know, gotcha. I, I, yeah. So um, it's a little bit of a convoluted journey, but um, I was uh, working in Europe, um, and so I was working for the United States government, and I don't want to say I tired of that. I didn't at all, but I had another opportunity um, to work with a U.S. company while I was living in Europe, and that work uh, basically um, put me in touch with, it's a British company, uh, so based out of London, the Mintel Group, uh, this also has a significant presence here in the United States. And that is a company that produces these um, essentially market intelligence reports um, for a wide variety of industries. But of course, my work was focused on the food industry and their clients that would be, um, you know, food processes, ingredient suppliers, trade groups, et cetera, et cetera. So working with them, uh, you know, I became a senior research analyst and was part of a team that would put together these market intelligence reports, um, you know, answering questions like, um, uh, why do Americans eat what they do? I was focused on the U.S., by the way. Yeah. Um, but a, a variety of a really interesting reports, like me, another one, like meal occasions, which means uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, highly uh, demanding work. And as they would say, you know, uh, there's only a specific mind that can be an analyst because we have to search through a huge amount of data to get to what's important um, for, you know, the marketing groups or the research groups of these companies to know 
uh, right now, uh, what's actionable, what do they need to know, so and what's relevant and what's correct. This was a British-based company. I know that you were focusing on US um, behaviours, but did they have data from the UK and was it vastly different at that stage from the US or was it pretty much the same? So um, it was interesting. I just worked in the U.S. market. It's an interesting question because I think I would always ask them, well, why don't we bring in perspectives from around the world? Yeah. Because, you know, I grew up in Europe. And when you're looking at product development, I mean, there's phenomenal trends mm. in product development that come from around the world and also in behaviors. Um, look at consumer electronics. It's nothing to do with food. But I knew when I was working in Europe that we were doing things in consumer electronics or even in banking that we hadn't even touched on in the United States, you know. Right. So um, we were very focused. My work really was focused on the U.S. market. Um, but I was aware of trending in the U.K., in fact, fascinated by it. But it didn't come into the reports I was writing for the U.S. market. Gotcha. We're very segmented. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, genomics came along. <laughs> So what? Oh, it did. So I, I've got to ask you about this because you were at the sort of cutting edge of this when it first happened, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of yeah. skepticism in the beginning. What what made you realise? Oh, this could be interesting. Yeah. So um, so I'll, I'll take it back because your listeners may wonder. Well, how did you get from being nutrition into being an analyst? How did you get out of that and get into this? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I was trained uh, in nutrition science, I was trained as a dietitian, and after many uh, years of being in the analyst world and working overseas, I said, wait, you know, I'm trained as a dietitian. How do I hone my talents that I have there and kind of get back into the field, if you will? Mm -hmm. And the space for me is always, because growing up in Europe, um, I, I was lucky. My dad gardened. That was his his hobby, his passion. Um, and then when my parents divorced, my stepfather was in the wine business in France. Hey, you right. know, gardening and wine. <laughs> so I grew up with a huge, I know it doesn't get any better. Um, I grew up with a great appreciation for food. You know, food was a very important part of my life. And my parents um, made sure we understand that. So that I grew up in an era when our parents cooked. Imagine that, you know. Um, and so food uh, throughout my journey has been very, very important. Um, so I stepped back from analysis back into um, the, the nutrition field, and I founded a company called Field to Plate. Um, and my focus there was really to take, to develop tools and educational platforms for, um, you know, doctors and principally dietitians that could really help them connect nutrition science to the plate because most people get lost in the no man's land. And as I say, I was trained to be an expert in the interpretation of clinical nutrition science. But what was lost was the food part, which was so much a part of literally my DNA, you know, yeah. not just for the pun, you know, have a pun, but it was so important to me. <laughs> I couldn't understand through my education here in the U.S. why we weren't jumping up and down and excited about food. Um, and, you know, that never quite resonated at university, but it never was lost on me with my European background. Yeah. So when I stepped back into nutrition science and nutrition education, my work was always culinary. And I created these uh, very interesting educational platforms, uh, which actually took me, uh, they were culinary food tasting based, and they took me to um, South Africa. Hmm. And in South Africa, I met a leading researcher in nutrigenomics, and she saw my work, 
And I do some mapping work. So my mapping work to explain these difficult scientific processes so they become visual instead of like lists. You know that, right? Mm. You know, we do a lot of lists in medicine. Yeah. And it's hard for the consumer. Um, it, it really is. And anyway, with her expertise in nutrigenomics, she said, oh, my gosh, you know, we're in this cutting-edge field. And how you think and what you're doing is critical to how we translate nutrigenomics. So I sort of said, hey, let me let me understand what's going on in nutrigenomics. And I was always a biochemistry geek, so this was fantastic. You right. know, I could finally apply what I actually learned in biochemistry because it always made sense to me. And so this was, what, four years ago, really four years ago when this started to blossom, um, maybe longer than four years. And, um, you know, that immediately catapulted me back deeply into science right at the edge of genomics. And, um, you know, I said, oh, now I'm back in the field of biochemistry. I understand how that works with our genes. How are we going to do the culinary part? Because a genomic report, genomic information is no good if you can't translate it to the plate. You know, we're in that same space of leaving people in the no man's land, except genomics is far more complex, but far more rewarding. So, you know, that was really my journey. Um, You know, I was the right place, right time, wanted to do the translation piece. And so that's where culinary genomics came from, culinary translation of genomic or nutrigenomic information. I like the way that, you you know, you twig to that because like biochemistry has been one of my geeky things ever since I saw the, mm-hmm. the Bow Ringer biochemical pathways wall charts yeah. and, um, you know, which I still have yeah. now it's La Roche. You can, you can see them online and for our FX medicine listeners, yeah. we'll put those up on the, on the FX medicine website for you to access. But um, I used to see these pathways and you just see it as a given. That line goes to that via that enzyme. That mm-hmm. works always. That's what it is. It's black and white. But it's not yeah. so. And yeah. and the genomic aspects and how foods interact with it explains why sometimes it doesn't work and some people get more benefit from exactly. our food and things like that. So what was it that sort of made the jump between the black and white book, you know, Leninger or whatever it was, um, in biochemistry to I can do work here. I can use this to help my patients. So, you know, genomics, I mean, it's a long journey, right? Your biochemistry isn't easy. Um, and for some people, they get it, and other people never will, mm. right? Mm. Um, so yeah, you, you have to, as I explained to clinicians, you have to really want to, uh, first of all, want to learn this. Secondly, give yourself a break because it isn't easy. Mm. But I think what genomics does in biochemistry, it allows us all to learn it in action. So I don't know about when you were in school, but biochemistry was like the one course everyone ran from as fast (laughs) as they could. Because I think it's because you were learning these cycles that they were like two-dimensional, right? If this leads to this and this leads to this. And, you know, molecularly, this is how this molecule changes. You know, this is what a methyl group looks like. But you never were able to apply it because we didn't have genomics. Well, genomics makes biochemistry come alive because you see how uh, SNPs um, impact the way a cycle operates, and you see what the the um, produ- what the the um, outcome is mm. when a certain cycle doesn't work. Yeah. and and so that to me. But that, to me, was absolutely fascinating. And then when you add the food piece, which is how the body works, it's like the light bulbs come on. But, I, you know, when I'm teaching biochemistry, 
And I'm not an advanced biochemist by any means. You know, biochemistry is not my major, but as a nutrition major, you know, many, many years ago, nutrition is biochemistry. So yes. Yeah. It's very interesting to pick up biochemistry and teach it to fellow clinicians and see the light bulbs go on because they're now learning it three-dimensionally. Yeah. It's not just molecules like organic chemistry. It's this is how this cycle, as I say, it's how the cycle turns, and this is how they all interact, and this is the role of food to drive those cycles. Um, so it's genomics has allowed things, I believe, to become three-dimensional, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. that. The, the thing that turned it on for me was um, having patience and, and that I could attribute... Mm-hmm an aberrant, aberrant biochemistry or something going wrong and I could attribute that to that face, that person, yes. and help that person. That was exactly. that was a thing to me. Let's delve uh-huh. further, though, into the genomic kitchen because this is where you take food groups and then you apply it to a person, not a population, correct? I, do, I can do both. That's, right. that's the beauty of it. We can do both. I can speak out of both sides of my mouth, if you will. Um, <laughs> So the reason I created the genomic kitchen, there were two reasons, uh, but there's probably more than two. So we have two different populations. Obviously, you know, I'm working still at the professional level, teaching clinicians about the fundamentals of nutrigenomics. I'm not offering an advanced certification course, you know, biocuticals, right? So what I do for so, so many clinicians he was sort of looking and saying, oh, I should know something about nutrigenomics, right? It's the future medicine, but I don't know where to start. I offer them the gateway to understanding the very basics of nutrigenomics and how you can apply it if you don't have genomic information, which I think is really important. So, you know, I took my biochemistry and this field of nutrigenomics and said, what is it that we can apply, if you will, at a public health level, which I think is important because we have to address the public health level because most people right now are not going to access a genomic test. They're just not. You know, it's not, especially with insurance here in the United States, it's, we're, we're a ways away from that. Yeah. But what I felt was important that, was that, you know, we basically all have the same genes. It's the SNPs that you yeah. differentiate us. Yeah. But food works the same way for all of us. It's how much of the food and whether you need supplementation is what the difference is. So why not, when I'm working with clinicians and the public, to show them there's a way they can take advantage of food. We just reorganized the toolbox a little bit differently, Mm -hmm. which is what I did. I created a culinary toolbox or an ingredient toolbox where the ingredients are specifically chosen for how they work with our biochemistry. Um, so I teach that to clinicians. So it's entry level for clinicians, doctors, chefs, okay, and yeah. chefs as well. They yep. learn a little bit differently. I think you and I talked about that at one point in time. Um, but I also, for the public, you know, I created a, a long question, but we just shortened it. So they too can say, you know, how can I take advantage of this sort of personalized medicine era? I'm not quite ready to do a genomic test yet. Well, maybe the one I've got isn't broad enough, but can I start to create a grocery list and can I start to cook with food that talks to my genes? Yeah. And that's what I did with the genomic kitchen. Um, so a, a long-winded example, uh, answer, but at the individualized level, um, certainly I'm trained to um, interpret uh, genomic tests and, and, and SNPs. 
And um, we're going to be bringing that in as a company probably a little later this year. Oh. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> oh, exciting. So I can't. Yes, very exciting. But you can only do one thing at once. So you attack the public health and the entry level education yeah. step. And then once you've got all that automated and sorted out, you can then focus on how can I service the individual patient and, and how am I going to do that with what team? So That's where we're at. When you're talking about different food groups and the preparation that uh, is more specific for that person, what about the dose? You know, the I mean, the portion size is the biggest, one of the biggest issues in, in our convenient society, how much we eat. I guess you've also got the poor foods. So I guess that's where the, the choice yeah. of foods would, would be really important. But what, what about the dose? Yeah. Does choosing the foods help you also to modulate how much we eat or is that a separate thing that you need to attack? Well, it's, it's, both end, and it's a great point. And, you know, of course, I'm working here from the United States. Um, and what I've maintained for so, so many years, and it's probably the same in Australia, is a lot of what we have to do in nutrition and health education is help people understand their innate palate. We really have to bring them back to understanding what great food tastes like. Because once you understand great food, um, we can look at it hormonally or genomically or genetically, right? But once you reset the palate, people, I found, will gravitate to choosing great food. Um, and then you get away from the um, uh, excesses of eating the wrong food. Right. So we know, and you know, you know through your training, oh my gosh, we could spend hours talking about this, that so many people through the wrong food choices um, have set off like hormonal fireworks almost where they can't control their appetite right. or they're overeating for emotion and stress. So we can use genomics to kind of reset that, but we can also use food, introducing to great tasting food to also reset the palate. Mm. So we're working physiologically, but also kind of emotionally as well. Is that a long-term thing though? Like, do you find that it, it takes quite a few months to reset the palate or can you do it quite quickly? No, resetting, I, I think it takes a long time. And, you know, one of the things I've really appreciated so much in this work, and again, I I'm, I'm, can only speak from the U.S. perspective, is we, we have a population in distress. And mm. I don't know oh, yeah. what the percentages are, but probably in your practice, you're seeing a lot of people, they may manifest with diabetes, heart disease, you know, weight issues, but the underlying issues are emotional right? Yep. And the stress driven. Um, and our intake forms point that out. So yeah, there's obviously some genetic uh, markers there. But until we undo and sort out the emotional issues, food is a part of that, but the, the, the mental health issues, emotional issues are underlying so much stress that we're seeing which is undermining our genes and our responses, hormonal responses, undermining the gut, right? So then once we, we're working with dysbiosis, that fires off, you know, from the gut, completely different signals that impact that leptin-ghrelin axis. So it's almost like we have to look at where do we start? What do we have to undo first so that we can let food do its best job? Yeah. That's a long one. You probably agree with this yeah, yeah. medicine training that so it, food is extremely important. It's, it's the principal information source, but we cannot cannot avoid the 
isolation, depression, stress, emotional issues that are, at least here in the United States, are pervasive and invasive. And I guess that ties right back to genomics. You know, when you think about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the poster child of genomics, which would be your methylation cycle, and there you've got the anxiety, stress, depression, all of these other mood altering um, or mood alterations, and then you can address yeah. it with foods. One of my questions is, you've, you've got a, quite a different palate in the US compared to an yeah. Australian-type palate, yeah. um, and we're yeah. a lot more salty. Now, now that's a vast generalisation, but mm-hmm. you know, yeah. here's the very simplistic one of that, peanut butter and jelly versus Vegemite, <laughs> right? A, a, an American can't stand Vegemite. And I can't stand peanut butter. It's just like the most revolting thing right. that I can think of. And, and again, it's cultural, right? But yeah. I, I think when I first started hiking here, when you take peanut butter or banana and peanut sandwiches, I'm like, no, we don't. <laughs> we do not take that. Where's the Marmite or where's the Vegemite? Because, yeah, growing up in the UK, even though we're... You had Marmite. Uh, oh, I have Marmite, yeah. So I grew up with a, a, a savory palate, too. Right, And right. to this day, you will not convince me to eat most of the... The sweet. I won't eat candy in the U.S. You know, growing up in Europe, we had great, great chocolate. Mm, you know, yeah. um, especially growing up in the U.K., those companies are all gone now. But you know, our outside of the U.K. and Central Europe, you know, if you're going to eat sweet food, it's tiny bites, and it tends towards more tart. You right. know, so eh, I don't have an issue with sweet in the United States, but the American palate is sweeter, like you said. I think it's going to change, but it is sweeter. Ah. Yeah. You said it's going to change? Yeah. I, I think, I, yes, well, that's a huge uh, statement from Amanda Archibald. But <laughs> I really think, yeah, I, you know, we, that, that's extremely political in that, you know, with our subsidized crops, you know, we have grains and sugar in, in, in so many products. But I think the consumer here is getting smarter. Um, it, it, the, they're okay. starting to see connect the dots. We have a long, long, long way to go, but I think genomics is super cool in that you know you can look at SNPs, you can look at the 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 taste SNPs, you know the Tab Two R family, you can see why people may be predisposed to eating sweeter foods. Once they see that, and once they can see that, you know. Some of the SNPs can predispose them to, um, you know, storing more fat more readily, if you mm. will, or harvesting calories more readily. That is like staring. You can't deny your genes. And, and so genomics is so powerful in helping people understand where their health is, why they may be prone to putting on weight or whatever, why their kids like sweet food over savory, and what we can do about it, which is where the kitchen comes in. That's why it's so powerful. So You mentioned before about you can work on a personal level or a population level. We've got the mm-hmm. Mediterranean diet. You've got the Dash 2. So Mediterranean is a cultural diet. Dash 2 is a, a you yeah. know a vegetarian-based um, therapeutic diet for conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the new kids on the block, the keto diet, the paleo diet. Are mm-hmm. we talking... Like their population type things, I guess. Keto is more personalized. But where does your sort of genomic kitchen come in? How does it differ and how does it compare? Well, I think the comparison I'd say with keto and paleo is uh, that both of those approaches really focus on whole food. I mean, how those foods are arranged is different, right? Right. right. Um, but where 
genomics is so powerful. So we'll look at individualized genomics, and I think I just blogged on this, why the keto diet isn't for everyone, is for some of us, that approach um, is a disaster for our genes. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are just guessing, right? Yeah. They're, they're doing great. You can do two people who have no idea what their biomarkers are, who both can drop weight like a rock because they're eating the whole food again. If we organize the calories and they distribute them to fat and protein, okay, fine. Um, but, you know, we all, we know, and I will be one of them, if, if I were to do that, uh, yep. Uh, right. My, my uh, lipid panel would be would be uh, pretty sad. So that's what I, I think. You know, I, a lot of these quote approaches are done blindly, uh, and genomics helps remove the blindness and say, you know, what there are other ways that we can optimize how food works in your body, and keto or some modification of it will be great. Um, but yeah, seventy percent, sixty percent fat—not for you. Or we need to manipulate the fat. Yeah, and even that. So there's a lot of blind trust, I think. Yeah, I've got to wonder how many people out there say they're going to attempt keto, and then all they do is have bad fats. <laughs> like, ah. yeah, we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> or, or is it just you know? I mean, it, again, I think it may be a process along a continuum for some people that if they move from processed foods or as Michael Pollan says, food-like substances, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that our body does not recognize into food that our body may recognize like a plant or something that had a face. Mm. I think that's Michael Pollan as well. Yeah. Um, you know, they've made a step. The next step would be, you know, with the biohackers and health optimizers is like, look, up until this point, you, you, you've lost weight, you feel better, you're at the gym, you know, uh, you're lifting your weights and doing your tough mutters or whatever, you know, these crazy races. But let's take a look inside because you're getting away with it. You look great, feel great, but your inner biochemistry is what we're most interested in. Um, and can you yeah, find so. then that somebody who might look great, feel great, you tweak their biochemistry using nutrigenomics and yeah. then they uh, rise to another level? Is that what you find? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, like I said, this is your, this is you. These are your genes. Yeah. And while you look great, how long is that going to last? Right. Uh, you know, when your triglycerides are through the roof or what have you. Or what have you. So um, I think we're only just um, learning. We're in early stages of, excuse me, of learning that. So, you know, each person is an indi is, a, is an individual, but, you know, a lot of what I'm doing, so that's at an individual level, but at a population-based level, um, instead of telling people just eat your fruits and veggies and, you know, choose the, choose the low glycemic ones, now we can take people and say, among the when you're in the produce department, we want you to veer towards these specific vegetables because they contain bioactives that work with um, key genes. And here's how those genes work, and here's how this food works, and here's what you do in the kitchen. That is extremely powerful for for everyone, uh, yeah. whether you know your genomic information or not, because food all it works the same way. For some people, we need to tweak, as we know, oftentimes with supplements. To me, it's sort of heading back to where we need to. Um, so often there was a a look at a, you know we've we've said it before the biochemistry, if you like, or even if, when you're talking about a um, 
not a food group, but a food biomarker. Uh-huh. Allicin from garlic, for instance, um, indoles from brassica vegetables, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Even flavones or, or various flavonoids or flavols, you know, the root yeah. and the quercetin and all yeah. of these things. And then we'd say, oh, yeah, but that's a supplement. What you're doing is you're saying, yeah, 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 hang on. These are the, these are the foods that contain these. Yes, yeah. I mean, there are foundational foods. This is where the Mediterranean is so interesting. Uh, there are foundational foods that we know contain a bioactive that um, um, basically uh, um, activate transcription factors um, that um, initiate gene transcription. Yep. So if we look at the right, if we look at the fundamentals of functional medicine, they are you know m- mitigate oxidative stress, inflammation, support biotransformation, support the gut, right? There are other pillars. But so this applies to everyone, whether they're sitting in front of us or not. And these are terms we've not talked to the public about. At least those of us who are trained clinically, we we sort of talk to people. Half the clinical population is in denial that detoxification is actually a process, I think, sometimes. Mm. Mm. So, uh, you know, we're too busy, you know, managing a system or managing a part of the body, as I say. So instead of managing the body as a system. Yeah. So if we go back to this tenets of functional medicine, explain to the public, look, it's not about your heart. We don't eat foods assessing just for your heart yeah. because it works everywhere in the body. We have to change the food conversation so the public understands how food functions in the body, which food we're talking about, how it impacts the body, and then importantly, how to prepare it so you get the best impact from that food each time you eat it. Mm. That's what I'm working on. <laughs> so obviously whole foods should always be the basis of any nutritional prescription, dare I say that word. But um, then you get practitioners that will very often use functional foods, certainly for sick people, might have digestion issues, might have chronic fatigue, whatever. And then there's supplements, these isolated chemicals, which right. you know we can, or which we might want to use to bolster up one area. The classic example here sure. is added folic acid during um, fertility management and pregnancy and iodine for anybody right. who's pregnant. Right. What are the benefits? What are the differences? And indeed, what about any pitfalls with any of these, like functional foods and supplements? Yeah, if I can really speak more clearly to supplements, that would be where my knowledge base would be more, so whole foods and supplements. So, you know, I'm... Uh, an absolute avid believer is I think any of us who work in uh, uh, clinical nutrition or medicine is that we need to measure before we um, intervene, yep. right? Yep. So we have a, I don't know about Australians, but in the United States, you know, the supplement industry is doing real well. And we have a lot of people who think they need to supplement with vitamin D uh, or whatever the supplement of the day is. You know, it's it's the same with when we're looking at keto. Is keto right for me? Well, you may feel good and look good, but the reality is that biomarkers or lab data will tell you where you are on a continuum. And so for me, supplementation really should be taken in conjunction with a baseline lab that indicates whether you do need to supplement and whether you respond to the, the recommended dose or whether you need more. And I think vitamin D is a perfect example of that. Great idea. Um, same with, with with so many supplements, right? We People can blindly take them because they've read about it. I mean, I'm sitting on lists mm. of watching all kinds 
of people in, say in a health coach network, hey, I have a patient with this, what do you recommend? I always want to go in and say, well, get a measurement before you recommend anything. You don't know what you're doing. You're yeah. working blind. Yeah. And it's a waste of money for the consumer to take supplements without knowing what the baselines are or what the impact of that supplement is. So, um, you know, I think we're almost using supplements pharmacologically and not knowing we are uh, without working with an expert who can evaluate and intervene and yeah. support. So I'm all about the supplements. A, a wise professor here once said, "I if I can't change it, I won't treat it. And it sounded a little bit... Um, offish, a little bit arrogant, if you like, at the time. But I, I think I get what he meant, and that is, if I can't make sure that I'm benefiting that patient, why am I putting exactly. a treatment into place? And I wholeheartedly get that that's what you're saying, you know, about if you can't yeah. give a valid reason why you're doing something, why are you doing it? Yeah, uh, you know, if you, yeah, and the valid reason will come from, you know, the assessment, validation, you know, baseline Biomarker, baseline, you know, lab information, intervene, reevaluate. I mean, that's how we're taught. So um, I think there's a lot of recommendations. I don't completely disagree with, you know, uh, take a multivitamin supplement as, quote, an insurance policy. But in some ways, for some people, when economics are at play, even that's too much, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a lot of money for a really good supplement, Flying blind. When when you could add it to your, uh, let's say your organic budget, you know you could you could divert that money to your organic food and get a much better yeah. bang for uh -huh. buck. Particularly if you combined it with a genomic test. I guess this is where my next question is going to head, and yep. that is, do you first always do a genomic test to apply these principles? Um, do you combine them with labs? And indeed. Do you, now that you've got experience with this, do you go, ah, oh, I know this lab's going to change in you because you've got this sort of SNP? No, we can't always get that, you know, because the body is so dynamic, right? I mean, I can use my own example um, of how you can't guess. Um, you know, my genomics, you know, you got to walk the walk to talk the talk. Mm. My genomics, you know, snipped throughout my vitamin D patent, you know, pathway, including the receptor. Um, I was about to go into vitamin A, but let's like let's not <laughs> mess up the biochemistry here. But you know, we'll keep it straight. Um, you know, everything from my estrogen metabolism, through my vitamin D pathway, through collagen uh, SNP, I forget called one A. I can't remember what the SNP was. Suggested, ooh, you have a problem. Not any building. <laughs> phone matrix, but you probably have high turnover. So right. like, oh, that doesn't look so great, right? So yeah. I run and I uh, get my uh, DEXA, my bone mineral density scan. It came out awful. I mean, I'm like, oh my right. gosh. My OBGYN said, oh, Amanda. I said, you're not supposed to tell me it's bad. I'm like, oh yeah, that's horrible. So unfortunately at the time I lived in Denver and I was wow. able to see an excellent physician who worked in um, bone metabolism. He was a you know, lead researcher. And so, as you said, I'm going to ring your bones inside and out. So he ordered labs I've never even heard of, you know, some of these biomarkers. But they came back optimal. Right. So I have no high bone turnover at all. But if I didn't have genomics and I had that DEXA scan, guess what? I would be on Fosamax or something. Gotcha. You know, I would be the lead candidate. So, and then we also, of course, measured did my 125-hydroxy, and it came back optimal. So even though I have these SNPs, if I didn't do the extra steps, so that the genomics provided the signpost, yep. 
to get the lab, you know, to get the evaluation, to get the lab, to put it all together, say, you're fine. You know, so I could have been taking high doses of vitamin D. My mother did that all her life um, with osteoporosis. didn't make any difference. Um, and so, but other areas, in, in my case, of my report suggested, hey, you do need to take um, DIM. You need ubiquinol. Yep. You know, do not convert to the active form um, of CoQ10. So, you know, I, I think what genomics does is it, it, it's a signpost to evaluate, and it tells us how to intervene. And I think in terms of saving money and the right supplements, it tells you exactly where to go. Yeah. And I love that. <laughs> That's a very smart thing. I can I can see that as almost like a lab, you know, like what would normally considered to be a laboratory assessment. You're using these, the, the genomic SNPs, to say, well, you've got a deficiency in converting that to this. So this is where your yeah. yeah shortfall lies. I love it. Yeah, and you know, you you intervene with you try to intervene with food first, obviously. Yep, always. So really, we need to say biomarker, food focus, and let's be unless there's some extenuating circumstances where, like with ubiquinol, for example, we know you're not going to convert ubiquinol and ubiquinol. So there, we supplement given your risk. In in this case, we look at estrogen metabolism. So um, yeah, food first, reevaluate, and not responding supplement reevaluate. And that way, I think we help the consumer spend the money wisely on food and on the appropriate high-quality supplements at a dose that works for them instead of guessing. Mm. And there's so much guesswork going on. There's so much. Yes. If, yes. I, I can't imagine how you could recommend supplements to someone without evaluating pre and post. Yeah, but I also like what this is saying. This is saying it's more than just a supplement. It's saying even down to which form, why you might have as you said, a seeming deficiency on one hand, but your actual tissues were optimal when you looked further. Conversely, yep. you know, blindly giving one form of, of a supplement, CoQ10, let's say, when you really require the activated form, that sort of, exactly. you know, knife-edge thing, it's really good. Well, I mean, it's critical because if you think about that, you're leaving somebody kind of out in the wild, yeah. you know, you are not supporting their biochemistry and your SNPs will tell you that. And so as, as I've been trained, you know, the genomic information is one tool, an important one in the clinical toolbox, but it doesn't, I think it's, um, it sits right there with the intake, you know, that helps you really evaluate what's the risk if somebody has a number of SNPs in their detoxification pathway, eh, you know, they've worked all their life in a coal mine, eh, okay. Yeah, not good. <laughs> we need to intervene fast, not so great, you know, yeah. or they've been exposed to whatever, worked in nail salon, for goodness sake. Yeah. Versus somebody who may have snit, but, you know, they, they've uh, worked out in a beautiful environment, not exposed to any pesticides or what have you. Um, so the intake form, I think, is just critical to guiding the prioritization as well. Because it costs time and money. Yeah. Who can't fix it all? So you teach, you know, as you said, practitioners right down to chefs how yeah. to modulate food to give the best benefit and how, how to work it in. What will you be taking practitioners through at the 2019 Biocidical Symposium? What will you be giving them? What tools will you be giving them so that they can go, ah, this is change. This is how I, you know, can use this. I guess without giving too much away, you need to attend the symposium. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me find. What am I teaching? Let me go find. Yeah. So, <laughs> really, you work as hard. We're teaching a lot. So I think at the, the 
I'm teaching a couple of uh, plenary sessions. The first one has actually got nothing to do with my area, which is culinary genomics, and it's looking at, um, it's called Navigating the Blue Zones in the Age of Genomics. Yeah. And there we're sort of looking at longevity yep. and genome-wide area studies and what do we know about, if we could roll it all up, what are the principal SNPs and what, how do we cross-map genomics to the observations from the blue zones? Um, and, and so, you know, part of the blue zones, of course, is one of the, I don't want to say it's hallmark of longevity research, but it, it. it garnered a lot of attention. It got us all fascinated, right? Yeah. So I went in um, and looked at genome-wide area studies, and then I started to say, okay, let's dig a little deeper here. Let's look at what the folks in Sardinia and Icaria are eating, right. you know, based on what beyond gambutinous that they're eating, based on what, you know, what, what is reported from, from science. And when you put that together, and this is fascinating, I wish I had a half a day to talk about it, not 75 minutes. When you put it together, you start to realize that the fundamentals of what they're eating, um, the, the components and the ingredients that they're eating are speaking to their genes. Yeah. So to me, it's like, aha, you know, chrysin, so honey is used across the Mediterranean as a sweetener that contains chrysin, chrysin. Um, can activate um, the NRF2 or the NRF2 pathway. Hello, yeah. Yeah. we just turned on, you know, the most potent source of antioxidants we could. So we're teaching that, and then I'll be teaching about culinary genomics. What is it? Where did it come from? What does culinary genomics look like in the in in the kitchen? Um, you know, what's what, what are the definitions? What does the toolbox look like? Why was this toolbox uh, put together? And how do these ingredients work? And then you, you'll be doing um, some workshops? Yes, I'm doing a case study. So I'll actually, um, you know, be presenting a soup to nuts case study. So um, more because of my work, I'm not going to spend so, so much on the clinical side. It's okay. We, we're, we're all smart here at this conference. We sort of get the clinical side. What are you going to do with the clinical information in the kitchen? How do you walk that into the kitchen? So here's the ingredients. Here's the, here's the nutrient focus. Here's the ingredients that are going to deliver that nutrient focus. How can you ensure those nutrients will be delivered to the gut? What's the culinary considerations? And what's some of the sort of culinary techniques we can look at or recipe organization that you can grab out and get your individuals working with right away? So I'll be teaching about some of the, the concepts of how we can do that um, or how if we're busy as doctors, um, et cetera, um, how we can have our uh, support staff, so our health coaches or what have you, yeah. help do the coaching, you know, what that looks like. And the genomic kitchen, I've, I've got to raise this for those listeners that might not be in Australia, might not be able to attend the Biocidical Symposium, um, and in, of course our international listeners, um, the Genomic Kitchen, how can they get further information about it? And do they enroll? Is it a course that they have to be there or can they do it online? Yeah, I work mainly online. There, there are more workshops in the US right now um, where you can experience the Genomic Kitchen um, either as um, an individual or as a, you know, a professional. But, so if you go to genomickitchen.com and look under courses, mm. You'll see it divided into health professionals and, and individuals, um, and you can see what we're doing there. But again, for, for clinicians, my I think this is the point to emphasize is, you know, I'm not a certification advanced biochemistry company. My focus is really um, to help clinicians who are interested in this area or have some knowledge um, kind of step into the kitchen. You know, we go from yeah. the biochemistry 
into what are the foods that deliver that biochemistry, support that biochemistry, and what do you do with it in the kitchen? So it's a good, you know, baseline course. Um, or even for people who've had advanced training, we still need to know what you do with this in the kitchen. What's yeah. the toolbox I can talk to my patients yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's crucial. That's and and as you say, it's crucial from an, econo- from an, an economic point of view because you really have to, you know, be wise to look after the, you know, the dollar, the budget of the patient without getting too personal for um, into their monetary situation. But but you really have to be responsible about, you know, what bang for buck you're giving. And I think what you're doing is you're really targeting it in, in I mean, right down to the genes. So it's, it's really, it's awesome stuff. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's exciting. I can't imagine doing it any other way anymore. We have that information. So whether you have a genomic test or whether you understand how genes work, we can we can we can kind of plug both ends of the market, if you will. Yeah. And hopefully, in the end, we will genomic testing will be part of being a human. It'll be a right, you know. Yeah, because that's right. Because it sure right. will save a lot of dollars, right? Well, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> a lot of dollars, Amanda. I I for one, I I just I can't wait to meet you and to hear what you're going to impart. Um, to all of us at the symposium, because uh, um, what you're doing, like it's this is cutting edge. It's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting, exciting out there. So well, thank you yeah. so much for taking us through that today. One last quick question: So, do you always do a genomic test before you apply the principles of nutrigenomics? So much of my work, Andrew, it's really focused on the public health arena. It's it's focused on broad-based education. However, when I'm working with individuals, um, I can't see any point in seeing an individual without genomic information. I mean, that's what we do. So, you know, there are so many other clinicians out there who are practicing without genomic information. So, you know, the public has a lot of opportunity. So, for us and many of us practitioners now, um, that's part of the entry to working with us because otherwise, I, you know, I think we're seeing blind. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I would not see an individual one-on-one without a, 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 some form of a genomic task. So which one we choose, of course, um, depends on whether they have an active diagnosis or whether they're really just saying, hey, I'm just interested and when we can choose a different task. Yeah. Amanda, I, seriously, thank you so much for taking us through this. Like, there's a lot more to learn. I get it. Um, so, you know, yeah. if you can attend the symposium, please do. Um, but certainly look up the Genomic Kitchen and get wise about this because this is where we're sort of uh, heading with personalised medicine and it's really going to be the linchpin, I think, with patients' treatment plans to, to make sure they get the most out of, you know, the food that they eat. So... Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're a healthcare practitioner and want to learn more about how to develop more targeted treatments for your patients using genetic testing, then Bioceuticals DNA Testing in Practice is for you. This 10-module professional development course presented by Dr Denise Furness is designed to help you unlock your patient's health potential. You'll learn how to move away from the trial and error approach that so typically leads to patient dissatisfaction to a targeted clinical model defined by decision-making 
that distinguishes those patients most likely to benefit from a given treatment from those who will not. For more information on the DNA Testing in Practice 10-module program, visit the Bioceuticals website or contact your Bioceuticals sales representative.